Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Why don't we begin? I want to welcome my guest today, uh, Brooke Kroger. I believe no relation to the supermarket chain. Not at no. all. And she shakes her head. Uh, author of Suffragists, Fanny Hurst, uh, Nellie Bly, Passing, which I guess, I don't know if, you, I wouldn't say you lifted it. Maybe you were inspired by Nella Larson? I was inspired by Fanny Hurst, Imitation of Life. Ah, there you go. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. And um, in any event, most books uh, are uh, come about because a, an agent will submit a, uh, a a partial manuscript, an idea, a proposal to a publisher, uh, and then things begin to happen. Not the case in this in this particular instance. Uh, John Siegel, who's a, a friend and uh, uh, at Knopf, talk about that story because it's quite quite interesting. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting. <laughs> so I had and, and you put you to work on this fabulous book, by the way, which is exhaustively researched and uh, easy reading. Thank you. I appreciate your saying that. That's uh, somewhat in, in tribute to John as well, who is a remarkable editor, really remarkable. Anyway, I did not know him. And I had just announced to my colleagues at NYU that a year or so hence, I was willing to retire after 22 years. I thought it was time to go. And I come home and open my email and there is a cold call from a gentleman I did not know. And it says, hello, I'm Jonathan Siegel. I'm an editor at Knopf, and I am keen to commission a, a history of women in journalism from 1840 to the present. Would you be interested in discussing such a project? And of course, my response was, heck, yes. <laughs> I would really like to discuss that. I mean, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, uh, you know, underwriting feminism, right? Or feminist history. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the really early great response to this book comes from men, you know, because really women's history is men's history, too. And well, we've been a little bit tarnished in the last couple of years by not fact, not fairly. You know, I, I, would, I won't suggest on air what should be happening to Harvey Weinstein every day, but uh, we're paying for that big time, even those of us who don't deserve it. So uh, when we finally met, which wasn't long after, John explained that he had worked at the New York Times for quite a long period early in his career and that it was a boys club. And at a certain point in relation to something else he was working on, he went looking for a history of women in journalism and could not find one. Actually, there's a great one that goes up to 1936, but that's the last time I believe this was attempted. Who was that? Who wrote that book? A woman named Ishbel Ross, who was a terrific reporter for the New York Herald Tribune, what, what, what was called one of the original front page girls. So mm -hmm. every paper had one. They were women who were allowed to cover everything and did it well and were not peg posted to the women's pages. And then she gives up journalism at a certain point and becomes a book writer and writes many, many books. This was the first of them. Uh, she worked under Stanley Walker, who was a legendary city editor. At the he, New York Herald. At the Herald Tribune. And he adored her and would talk about her as every newspaper man's idea of what a newspaper woman should be. You know, but, you know, everything is always through the male gaze in these cases, of course. But 
but that was considered a great compliment. Other women like Alice Rowe, who um, had the Rome Bureau for United Press, uh, Ray, Roy Howard, you know, Scripps Howard owned United Press in those days, uh, would talk about her as the only newspaper man who never wore pants. You know, I mean, there were, these were considered compliments and in truth, women took them as compliments. I know, think we, they were intended as compliments. If I, my yeah, perceptions but, are accurate. But think about it, you know, it's yeah. really the man's gaze on, on women in a real way. Anyway, so John said that one of his habits is to make little yellow post-it notes of possible ideas and he puts them on his desk. And then most of them he tosses away because, you know, they fade in time. But this one did not fade in time. So that's how this happened. And then he called um, uh, someone whose work he respects a lot, Nick Lemon, me too. And Nick Lemon suggested my name and that's how I got this project. Wonderful, I'm, I'm glad, glad it happened. I wanna go back to, so I guess the early 1830s, 1840s. Uh, many of the women you write about, I would say got this start through the abolitionist press. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and that, that as we talk about it, I'm wondering what did did women bring some particular sensitivity to the issue? Uh, did guys not want to write about it? You know, Horace Greeley, for example, uh, picked selected Margaret Fuller, who was one of the the early pioneers and hero heroines, I guess is the word in your oh. book. Uh, talk about uh, Horace Greeley, Margaret Fuller, uh, and the other abolitionist press that put women to work. Okay. So in the Margaret Fuller period, she is sui generis. She is the it girl of the 1840s. I mean, there is just no one who approaches her. Everything any woman at the top of the journalism field would like to be, she had already achieved between 1840 and 1846. I mean, she's just completely remarkable. And even more so because she's homely. She has off-putting quirks. She, you know, there's nothing about her that you would think of as something that compelled people to her but her genius was so overreaching and so remarkable that everyone paid attention. And not only that, you know, journalism is meant to fade. Journalists are meant to fade. It's work that's ephemera. It's work that goes away in a day, a week, a month. Her legacy persists and the respect and the, um, the way she is considered at, is just remarkable even to this day. And most of her biographers, by the way, are men. <laughs> and by the way, it's at least one every decade, at least one since 1840. Well, it's nice to hear us being spoken of so highly. Thank you. I think we have to give credit. And in a field that was so dominated by men, the only way women got opportunity in those earlier years, and those earlier years go on for 120, by the way, uh, I have to say that had to do with some man deciding they were going to overlook all the things that were in the way of doing that. So when you mention the abolition press, the abolition press had no money, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have money, you're a little bit more open to who you're going to hire than you are when you have plenty of money to hire the people who were, you know, already have gotten the A plus check. So women found opportunity to show things that they could write about things other than flower pots or write poetry or short stories that they could show that they could engage with the major cultural currents and issues and politics of the day. They could do it through the abolition press. Well, guess what? 
everybody at the Atlantic and the New York Times and everywhere else is reading the abolition press. So it creates a platform that allowed a very few women, but some really great ones, to segue into the mainstream. Wonderful. And, and, and that period also, we, we can't, we have to mention Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who's, I guess it was her brother was the preacher in Brooklyn, Henry Ward Beecher. Uh, Some relative. Sure a relative, yes. Right, she's right. part of it. Who ironically also shares a birthday with Pete Hamill and I, and Jack Dempsey, <laughs> and Ambrose Bierce, the 24th of June. Uh, one, you, you mentioned a woman that I, uh, it stuck to me many, many years ago. One of my first, uh, employers, I was in the garment business, a man named Al Bobro and Al would frequently speak about Ida Tarbell. I can't remember the context and what it came up, but at the, like the age of 18 or 19, I knew about the history of stand. I've never read it. Pardon me. So who was Ida, Ida Tarbell? And there was another Ida floating around, uh, a black woman, Ida Wells. Talk about those two Ida, ladies and their importance in this conversation. Uh, the two Idas, yes. So the two Idas are more or less, they're contemporaries of each other, but didn't know each other as far as I could determine. And I checked with some previous biographers. No one could find any direct connections between them. You think there, there would have been because they were both such exemplary investigative reporters at the very beginning of, of investigative reporting. And of course, the other name in the same you know, kind of age group, age cohort, is Nellie Bly. There's a big difference between Nellie Bly, girl reporter, her work, which is very experiential. I was there, you can believe me. And the kind of documented hardcore investigative journalism that the two Idas pioneered. In Ida B. Wells's case, of course, she documented the cases of lynching across the South. She was not afraid to explain the, um, the ways that black men were being unfairly talked about uh, in relationship to white women and how that, that was causing lynchings, of course and unfairly. She was very bold in her work, but she did it through documentation. And in the case of Ida Tarbell, who grew up in oil country in Western Pennsylvania, she did a huge investigation of Standard Oil and really was instrumental in helping to break up the monopolies and really causing them some serious headaches. And you know the work of these two women and Nellie Bly all survive, you know, again, against the current of ephemera that is journalism. So they're remarkable on their own. Well, you, you talk about Nellie Bly, which is a, not her real name. Uh, you wrote a, a, a complete book on Nellie Bly. So you've been able to whittle it down and very briefly. Who was Nellie Bly? So Nellie Bly um, is, you know, a legendary character, uh, a figure that, you know, 11-year-old girls are still fascinated by and still make the subject of their National History Day projects. She has that kind of appeal. She was very young. She comes to New York. She wants to make her mark. She manages to get the New York world to hire her to feign insanity and spend 10 days in the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island, which of course is now Roosevelt Island. And in, I mean, nanoseconds, she is a national phenomenon. And over the next two and a half years, which is really the entire period of her serious workaday journalism career, though she comes back to it various times in the rest of her life, including during World War I. But during that two and a half years, she week after week after week is doing exposés where she poses as a character 
gets herself arrested to see how matrons treat women in prisons, does things like that over and over and over. Geraldo Rivera before he became Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> Way before. Yeah. And then her coup de grace is uh, at the end of these two and a half years in 1889-1890, she uh, does a lightning trip around the world to beat the fictional record of Phileas Fogg and around the world in 80 days. And that is board games, all kinds of swag, you know, of any any kind of description, and uh, and that's those are those are the things people generally remember and care about her about. But the life itself is remarkable over the entire fifty eight years that she lived. And uh, now she what was she was writing for Hearst, if I'm not mistaken, was it? Oh, I, maybe I am mistaken. No, you're not mistaken because okay. uh, Arthur, Arthur Brisbane. It's Pulitzer, but then Brisbane is at the world with Pulitzer, and then he moves to the Evening Journal. And when Nellie comes back from World War One, back from Austria, where she is an enemy alien for four years, but making a lot of that, um, he hires her to write a column, which she does for the last two years of her life. Let's get two men in there very quickly in this discussion: uh, Arthur Brisbane uh, and then Stanley Walker. Uh, what will what, you know, what were the great characteristics of Brisbane that made him a great editor? Uh, well, great ideas, which is what always makes a great editor a great editor. Mm. And um, and the support of the people who work for you, I guess, because he was extremely supportive of Nellie. And later on of other other uh, important figures in, in, in journalism who were women. He, he was a supporter of women. And Stanley Walker wasn't so much of a supporter of women because when you hear his descriptions of most of the women who work for them, they are not very flattering, but he could pick out the greatness. So Ishbel Ross, who wrote The Ladies in the Press, the book I talked about a minute ago, she was a great favorite of his. In his own memoir, where he names the 12 most important journalists in New York, they're all men, of course, except for Ishbel. Uh, I take that as a compliment. Uh, he also uh, uh, edited Rachel Carson. Uh, well, I, for some reason, since, if I'm not Did? mistaken, well, I, I, didn't she write for the Herald? Maybe I'm uh, no. no. Okay. No, she, she she wrote really for the U.S. Fisheries and Wildlife. She did their publications, and at the same time, she was writing for the Atlantic. She was writing for the New Yorker. I mean, she was I guess somewhat contemporaneous. I, like high end, yeah. But my my sense is because because we we came to her much you know our, our generation much much later than when she we got her got her starts, and we always associate her with Silent Spring and uh, and forget. Uh, you know her roots uh, where she had started again as a journalist a, a female okay. journalist and, you know and well you should remember her and i i just did a, an event for pen america last night and i was talking about this very fact that um rachel carson's silent spring joan didion's slouching towards bethlehem hannah arendt's eichmann in jerusalem and even betty Friedan's feminine mystique are four works of things that started as works of journalism, let's say. And 50 years later, on their 50th anniversary, these are works that were created in the early 60s at a period where women in journalism were still considered pretty negligible. All that, all those- the Women movies. in general were considered somewhat, ne let's be, be truth oh, be told. Okay. Yet at the 50th anniversary of these four works, there were symposia, panels, endless columns. I mean, for works of journalism to endure like that, 
is phenomenal because it's not the intention. There's no shame in works of journalism going away. I mean, they're supposed to go away. Go, go look through the Pulitzer Prize list and see how many stories you remember. Not so many. But these works stand, all works by women at a time when women were nothing. So that's remarkable, don't you think? I, I, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, let's talk about the first uh, journalist, not ne necessarily just the first female journalist, to be thrown out of Berlin by Adolf Hitler. Oh, Dorothy Thompson. Mm -hmm. So uh, can I say a word about how I approached? Absolutely. Okay. So how are you gonna organize all this material? Well, having this academic background as well, I have access to many, many, many proprietary databases that the average person doesn't really have access to. So you see a lot of aggregations and gestalts of material that are a little bit different. So I took about 15 or 16 of them and decade by decade, I inserted in the search box, women, journalism, those two words, to see what came up. So rather than go from who I'd heard of or I cared about or I thought was interesting, I wanted to see what people in their own period thought mattered. So by doing that, you know, certain things would pop out in ways that you'd go, wow, that's pretty remarkable. Dorothy Thompson, who nobody talks about anymore. I mean, it's interesting if you think about the three kind of luminaries of, of the same period, it would be Dorothy Thompson, Anne McCormick, and Martha Gellhorn. Well, the storyteller has outlaughed uh, us of the two pundits, it's pretty clear, uh, which is interesting in itself. But in the case of Dorothy Thompson, I thought she was extremely important to spend time on for two reasons. One was early in 1926, she's asked by the nation to talk about how it is to be a woman in Europe who, um, what's that noise? Uh, my apartment has been cleaned. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, okay. Um, she's asked. That's the mop, it, in the, the mop in the water. Got it. How, how, how is it that, um, uh, how is it for a woman who's working at this very high level position in Europe? <clears throat> she's the director of European operations at that point for the Philadelphia Ledger. And she says, you know, what a silly question. That's a question for women's magazines, you know, the women's question is settled, she feels in 1926, ha ha ha. But she has a wonderful take on that. So I was interested in her for those reasons. But then you notice that at a certain point in the 30s, the um, Saturday Evening Post, about as middle brow as you can get, and the New Yorker, not very many months later, both do profiles of her that take up the better part of two issues. like. Who gets two issues of a profile? I mean, that has to clue you that something really important is happening. And I did the same thing with like books that had been written of the 25 most important, you know, women writers of the 19th century or who compiled, who thought, who mattered. So I tried to approach it that way where it wasn't my opinion, but rather what was coming through the data. And aren't you happy there's an internet? Yeah, boy, that really well, helped <laughs> For my earlier book, there really wasn't, and I was doing all that scrolling microfilm. So this was a lot easier on my eyesight, I'll tell you that. And uh, well, you mentioned you mentioned Gilhorn, but before we get to Martha, uh, Dorothy, if I'm again, if, if I'm not transposing these characters, uh, was somewhat the model for a Woman of the Year. Uh, the the so film. Was, so was Anne. Oh yeah, for that film, yeah, absolutely. Right. More than some. And uh, 
she was married to Sinclair Lewis, so they were very much an it couple. And, and Rosalind Russell in uh, His Girl Friday. Uh, I don't know who the model for that was. I don't think that was Dorothy. Tucker. Something in that, but some of them, a part of them. I don't. I don't believe it was a Gellhorn. But let's talk about Gellhorn. Uh, probably the most. Uh, well, let's, we we could do a, a book on on Hemingway's wives, but certainly uh, Martha stood out. Uh, she's remarkable. So I spent a lot of time on her early background in St. Louis, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get a picture of who, who she was. And Carolyn Moorhead's book is wonderful. Yeah, as a wonderful book. Uh, but I went back to the St. Louis newspapers to see, you know, the society just covered. Oh, which would have been Pulitzer, no, right? No, you know, with the Post-Dispatch. It's a Pulitzer paper, but right. there's also uh, the St. Louis Star at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was going through the society pages to see how were they covered and who were the Gellhorns. You see that she's a person of enormous privilege. The family travels off into Europe. They're, they're of means. Her father's a very important position. Her mother was the consummate suffragist. She organized the most, the most major suffrage uh, event happening uh, in history, having women before the Democratic Convention line both sides of the road leading to the convention hall, all wearing gold, you know, and protest to trying to get the Democrats, as the Republicans had already done, to put a suffrage platform into their plank into their platform. So that, that's her background. And he is connected to Eleanor Roosevelt in a way that she can ask for an introduction to Helen Rogers Reed at the Herald Tribune, who's the publisher. She can ask for the president, Franklin Roosevelt, to give her a letter of entree to every embassy in Europe when she's there doing work. I mean, she has real privilege alongside this enormous talent. And uh, she worked during the uh, depression for FIRA, the federal agency that was involved with relief. Be FEMA today, right? Uh, I don't, maybe, yeah. yeah. But they did a lot of work in exposing the issues by having writers go out into the field and send back reports, almost case studies of what was happening and what they experienced. So she was part of that. A lot of her early ideas, I think, came in part from that experience. She always was looking for the human side of war or tragedy or crisis. And all of that, you know, made her work something that lasts. Well, jump ahead a little bit to uh, a name. Uh, and certainly I've been living in Paris now for 14 years, but in long before that, uh, Flora Lewis uh, here at the Times uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Marguerite, uh, Marguerite Higgins is the subject of a biography coming up uh, by the Con- uh, Jeanette Conant called Fierce Ambition. I, think, oh, I believe it's due out in October. Oh, I didn't even know about that. That's great. Talk about uh, those two women. Those are fabulous women. So Flora and Marguerite were classmates with Maria, which is really to me quite interesting. And um, they're very, very different. Um, I, I, Marguerite Higgins was long dead, Flora was long dead, but there was a, a fabulous oral history of like a seven part oral history, five part maybe, of Flora Lewis. So there was a lot of material there. And she talked a lot about Marguerite and her, the, the ambition that she was exhibiting very early. So for instance, in their Columbia class, they had an assignment to write an op-ed or something. And Marguerite had been to the library and taken out every book that mattered so nobody else could help me. And that's behavior she would exhibit over and over again. It was extraordinary ambition, but as Flora would say, 
but she was effective. And uh, there was a lot of criticism, Marguerite, for her personal habits, uh, not only her hygiene, <laughs> but her uh, interest in men and uh, that sort of thing. And Flora, you know, makes a comment in her uh, oral history where she says, there was a period where I resented this, that all women would get tarred with that brush. And, you know, it was really not good for us that people behaved in this way. She says, but then I came to think, well, the men all behave in this way. What's the difference? If a woman wants to behave like that, go for it. So I love Flora Lewis. I mean, she's one of my favorite characters. So she has this incredibly sparkling start of her career at the State Department for the AP, where she is breaking stories on Madrid tankers that nobody's got. And even the New York Times is forced to run them, which was one of her favorite early moments. Then she gets sent to London because she's also a linguist. And you know has and also Margaret Higgins has a French background, so she has languages. These two women were very much helped by their skill set, you know, which really helped catapult them over some men because they had the goods. They could speak the languages. They could do things like that. So Flora uh, is at AP in London. She marries Sydney Grusin, who's now at the New York Times, and Sydney gets moved to Poland, and that's the end of her full time work. And the New York Times, even though she's writing for the New York Times, often for him sometimes, will not hire her because they will not have married couples together. And I believe, I don't have the documentation on this, but I believe this stems from World War II, uh, Ray Daniel and Tanya Long, where they realize where Ray Daniel hires Tanya Long for, as London bureau chief, and she becomes part of the staff. Then when the war is over and they want to move away, you suddenly also have to move the wife who's, you know, and maybe there's not a job for her. I mean, it's, so that became complicated. So they established in the forties, a policy. And I'm, I'm thinking that might be the reason, uh, a policy of never having couples period. And that goes on until the 1980s. And so I do a whole chapter on coupledom at the New York times and how completely fraught it was when you had women like Flora Lewis, who were enormous talents in their own right, rights, possibly more than their husbands, or at least as much, who get completely shafted. In their well, I think career. we tend to talk more about Flora Lewis than Sidney Grusin. I mean, uh, in the general, you know, exactly. the casual reader of the New York Times like myself. Exactly, you know. but up until 1975, she was a freelancer. And she, everywhere they moved, they were moving Sydney at a rate of almost once a year. She would have to get a whole new strings because of course editors need something different so that would happen all the time so and she said sydney's career is more important than mine and i accepted that if i wanted to be in a marriage this is what i had to do Ultimately, they divorced and at that the new york times plucks her out of the city where she becomes and makes her paris bureau chief much to the chagrin of some people in the bureau was Punch the publisher at that time? And Punch was a very close friend of Sidney Grusin. Uh -huh. So I'm sure, you know, I can't say this as fact, but I think it's probably true that it was helpful to Sidney to have his former wife on full benefits at the point at which he had taken a new one. You know, maybe it's time to go back and read Gay Talese's Kingdom and the Power, which I believe I read when I was 23. And I said, oh, gee, I'd like to be a journalist when I grow up, but I'm too old. So it's fun to read now because you can put it on Kindle and you can read it with the search command. Uh -huh. well, I recommend that to you. Put in the word woman and see what you see. Okay. That's all uh, I'm 
<laughs> Let's talk about somebody that I, I didn't know uh, know about, Ann Stringer. Oh, Ann Stringer is so good. Good. She is just the most extraordinary character. You know, why are service women, I happen to be one, you know, aren't aren't usually at the top of anybody's list except maybe Helen Thomas, who kind of uh, surpassed that simply by, you know, being in Washington. Being Helen Thomas. And for six presidencies. So right. had the honor of the Washington press corps in that sense. But generally, we don't talk about wire service women. They're often writing without their bylines, or if they're writing with their bylines, they get stripped out by the time they get into a newspaper, or the work is absorbed into the work of somebody else who is signing. I mean, that's kind of the, not just women, but wire service men as well. That's kind of the nature of the beast. So she's... Um, do you want me to tell the whole story? No, I'm not going to tell. We have story. time. We have time. <laughs> the, the 10 minute buzz is. Let's talk about uh, about uh, Madam Stringer here. She's from Texas. She marries uh, a journalism school colleague. Uh, they go to work for a UPI bureau in Texas. And um, they get sent to Argentina. I mean, they're a great couple. She's terrific, incredible reporter. And they're in Argentina when World War II is on and they want to get to Europe. You know, they feel like they're, in, they're there through Peron, but they're ready to go. And uh, he, her husband is very anxious to go. So he leaves UPI and goes to Reuters. The Reuters is willing to send him with the understanding that as soon as Anne can get credentials, very hard for women to get credentials to go, that she will join him and Reuters will hire her. He goes. And uh, the next thing that happens, she's trying desperately to get credentials, I think, maybe not yet. But anyway, he gets killed uh, in a, examining a Jeep and a German rocket comes and kills him in an instant. And at that point, she, in the midst of her grief, she redoubles her desire to get to the front. And so UPI convinces her to stay, of course they love her and will help her to go. So then she goes through the same credentials drama that Flora went through. And this was created by the, I won't go into that, but there's a first round of women trying to get over who cause a lot of issues. And so then it becomes even harder for women to get credentials. But finally she manages, gets to Europe. She does extraordinary recovery uh, coverage she and two other women reporters are sort of known as the Rhine maidens. They are traveling up the Rhine with the troops. Even though women are not allowed to be doing this, they are simply, you know, abrogating uh, regulations and doing it anyway, because UPI sent her to be a reporter not a woman reporter. So she's doing her job as the other two are as well. And Time does an article about it. They say, you know, they dig their own trenches. They don't ask favors. They don't get in the way of the men, which is one of the issues that the military thinks will be a problem, that women will distract the men from what they need to be doing, or they will feel the need to protect the women. None of those things are happening. These women are doing their job. And so that goes on. And then there's word of the link up at Targao, which is when the Russian and American troops meet near the end of the war. This is considered the biggest story since D-Day. And Ann Stringer is determined that she is going to get there, even though she's not assigned. And, you know, this is all very carefully orchestrated by the military. She is going to get there first, and she, her story is going to go out first. She is just determined. 
So on a small plane, she and a, another reporter, each on a different small plane, because of course they only hold two people, the pilot and the passenger, and they get there. And then the person who's actually assigned as the pool reporter realizes he's not going to have an exclusive, but he thinks it's not really a problem because everyone's going to have to go through the Fifth Army censors. So his story will still go out first. He doesn't know that Anne is going to get herself back to Paris and file through the Fifth Army and avoid the First Army censors, which is what she manages to do. And there's a really interesting episode. So her pilot can only take her so far. He can't get her all the way back to Paris. So he stops because he sees a C-47 transport coming into view that is stopping for you know, some reason. And he stops behind him and Anne goes over and asks that will take her to Paris so she can file her story about the link up of the Russians and the Americans. And the two pilots say, oh, sure, you know, and I'm Stalin and he's Roosevelt. Um, you know, that's that's not true. So she just sits down under the wing. She doesn't argue with him, starts typing her story and then looks up at the two men and says, can you spell your name for me in your hometown? <laughs> at which point their entire attitude shifts. And so they agree to take her back to as close to Paris as they can get. And she hitchhikes a ride back to the Scribe Hotel and uh, it manages to file ahead, ahead of the entire universe. At that point, all the other correspondents are getting ready to go see the link up at Turgenau. <laughs> and so Drew Middleton is feeling sorry for her that she's gonna miss this big story. And the AP has no idea how they are going to be decimated within minutes. And all of that takes place. Then as the war ends, of course, the Nuremberg trials start. And in those days, uh, Harrison Salisbury and Walter Cronkite were unipressors. And Walter Cronkite is running the operation in Nuremberg. Harrison Salisbury is the foreign editor at that point back in New York, just for a little history people don't always remember. And uh, without Anne, fear or favor, I remember. And Anne is assigned to work with Cronkite. And he later tells the story in one of her little books that um, the real story at Nuremberg, of course, the, the uh, wire service's job is to report the daily happenings every day. You know, that's your basic bread and butter job. But the real story is in the documents that have all been lodged in the courthouse and having the contacts and going to the dinners and the cocktails and winning the favor of the people who have control of these documents where you can pull things out of the files and really see the extraordinary extent of the atrocities. And she is just scooping people day after day after day. At a certain point, you know, as with all things of this nature, the story gets a little tired and is not on the front page anymore and she wants to go. And Cronkite does not want her to go, <laughs> he wants her to stay. But as he says, this was an argument I was bound to lose. Uh, yeah, we, uh, um, thanks for bringing her into, into the story because she was certainly unknown to me. Uh, we have a, a few minutes. I, there's so many other people we could talk about. We're gonna have to get together on another occasion. But I, <laughs> I do wanna mention uh, Charlene Hunter-Galt uh, for oh, many yeah. reasons, uh, a partial, partially to absolve me of the guilt of misreading who she was not knowing much about her background, which you've informed me on. I thought she was a minority hire for NPR. Uh, so shame on me and correct mm -hmm. me and everybody else of my generation that thought that at the time. 
So you, you have two and a half minutes. Okay, I love Charlene Hebdol. She's <laughs> one of my favorite figures, and she uh, let me interview her at length, which was wonderful. So she is one of two people who integrated the University of Georgia. And uh, as a sophomore in college, she already had some journalism background. She worked on her high school paper. She wanted to be a journalist. Where she was she from? Star, Atlanta. Okay. Atlanta. And um, so that happens. Uh, then the New Yorker in 1961 or so is, you know, seeing this civil rights movement urgent and wants to extend its coverage, wants to, you know, open its eyes a little bit. And so you realize that you've got to put people in the pipeline. So the first thing they do is widen the way they're looking for editorial assistance, which is the entry level position. And the usual way that happens is word of mouth. Well, the word of mouth is pretty much all white in those days. So you're not really expanding your field. So Charlene is in the news. She's in the news all the time because she's a figure from what she's done in Georgia, uh, helping to integrate, not helping, but integrating the university. And so they reach out to her. The New Yorker reaches out to offer her an interview. She had already become friends with Calvin Trillin who had been in the Time Bureau of Atlanta and had written at length about what was happening in Georgia. So their friends, even though Calvin by this point has gone back to Time Magazine in New York to be one of the writers. I love this story so much. <laughs> so, you have a minute. <laughs> well, anyway, it's the start of her career. She goes on to the New York Times. She uh, gets the Times to stop using the word Negro. They begin using the word Black and that penetrates through the industry. It's pretty extraordinary. She uh, had a, what was a hyper-local bureau before there was hyper-local in Harlem and did some really extraordinary local coverage. Um, I, she's the bomb. She really is. I've got to stop you there, unfortunately. But we haven't talked about Francis Fitzgerald. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger said, fire in the lake. If Americans read only one book to understand what we have done for the Vietnamese and our, to the Vietnamese and ourselves, this is the one. And I'm going to process, I'll be interviewing George Black on Monday, has a book called The Long Reckoning, which oh, might good. be the second book that one has to read on. It's, it's oh, been a pleasure. This uh, time has just oh, blown oh, by. Oh. Thanks for joining us, and for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com, and subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris.